see all of you here this morning. And to that. as we uh, continue our study of Deuteronomy, we've been in for a few months now. Uh, we're getting into some stuff that may be familiar territory, but hopefully we will uh, glean something from it and understand it maybe better after we've come out. But we're getting into the Ten Commandments and, and uh, anyone who grew up in the church especially, but even some people that didn't grow up in the church know at least something about the Ten Commandments. And in the next several weeks, you will find uh, the parts of Deuteronomy we've already looked at and those that are to come interweaving with each other with a continuous theme throughout. The theme is that through Moses, God is reminding the Israelites that he is their God. And he has already shown himself faithful and powerful and gracious and merciful towards them. And because of this, he expects them to be loyal to him, to worship him only, to learn his ways and follow his commands. And today we're going to look at the Ten Commandments and in our context here this morning... This is the second time in Scripture that the Ten Commandments are recorded. The first time is in Exodus when Moses received them directly from God on the mountain. And here he is repeating them for the generation that's going to enter the Promised Land. Before we begin looking at the commandments themselves, I want to give an overview of what these commandments represent. Why were they given? And why were they to be obeyed? And if they were to be obeyed, what, what did that mean? What good would it do? It would be enough for God, the all-powerful creator of us all and the creator of all the world, to simply say to this, follow these commands because I said so. When we're teaching someone, such as our children, um, we often explain the reasoning behind our procedures or our rules, but sometimes the child may question a little too much, right? And they insist on an explanation. Finally, the parent gives up and says, do this because I said so, right? And sometimes it gets really extreme, and a mother might even say, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. Just obey me, right? But that's not our usual attitude, we usually want our children to understand some logic, some reasoning behind our commands. And God has not left his people Israel without a reasoning or a motivation to obey his commands. He repeatedly reminds the people of his goodness toward them and the things that he's accomplished on their behalf. And not the least of which is the one that comes right before the first commandment. We see this Deuteronomy 5, 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so as we get into the Ten Commandments, I've decided we're going to look at something that some of you may have grown up with depending on your church tradition. Um, and these are from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and these are what the Shorter Catechism is, is a series of questions and answers. It's to help children and adults to learn uh, theology and some of the basis of our faith. But anyway, uh, questions 43 and 44 are about the Ten Commandments. 43 says, what is the preface to the Ten Commandments? 
Answer, the preface to the Ten Commandments is in these words, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then question 44, what doth the preface of the Ten Commandments teach us? For those who don't know, like speak Old English, what does the <laughs> preface to the Old Testament teach us, or the Ten Commandments teach us? The preface to the Ten Commandments teaches us that because God is Lord and our God and Redeemer, therefore we are bound to keep all his commandments. So this comes in both recordings of the Ten Commandments, this initial phrase, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And this is the answer to one of our big why questions. Why should the people of Israel obey God? Because he is their Lord and God who brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. Now, I like to say, you may have heard me say at times, context is king. If anyone's heard me say that, they've been paying attention, that's good. There's another concept, though, that we want to use when we're trying to understand a part of Scripture. We, there's a phrase I like to use as well that says we let Scripture interpret Scripture especially if we have some evidence that another biblical writer has connected two or more passages, then we can begin to have a more complete understanding of the Word of God. In this case, our current section of Deuteronomy, chapters 5 and 6 especially, is quoted directly or alluded to dozens of times, both in the Old Testament, you even see it in the Psalms, and also in the New Testament as well. But one very important thing that we can learn about the commandments is what Jesus thought of them. In the Gospels, we can know what Jesus considered the greatest command because the question was asked and answered. It's in, it's in more than just Matthew, but I'm taking the Matthew passage this morning. For Matthew 22, it says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. If Jesus quoted a passage in Scripture, you think we should pay a little attention? I think we should. This is so important that immediately following that commandment is another, which we talked about last week a little bit, to teach these things to your children. These words I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And I talked last week about how this is the basis 
for the Sunday school curriculum that we're going to begin using in September called D6. And it's based on Deuteronomy 6. We are going to focus as a church on being obedient to these commands. To love God and to teach his command to our families. And since many families are unsure how to begin doing this, we're using a curriculum that takes it beyond Sunday morning, and we will be teaching parents that may not know how to engage with their children about the things of God, and we are going to offer you an opportunity to be trained and equipped to obey this command. So you will be without excuse, but you'll be with equipment and, and given that opportunity. Now, when Jesus answered that important question, what is the greatest commandment? He answered directly, right? That wasn't ambiguous. He answered directly, this is the great commandment and the first commandment. But then he added the second greatest commandment, which is, you shall love your neighbor as yourselves. And he added, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So this has often been applied to the Ten Commandments. It's been said, and generally this is a right way to look at it, that the first four commands have to do with obeying the greatest commandment, and then the next six commands, commandments five through ten, are about the second greatest commandment, that is to love your neighbor. Or to put another way, you, we say sometimes the first four commandments are about our relationship with God, and the rest are about our relationship with others. And I would agree with that assessment generally. However, it can also be said that our obedience to all of the commands is about us keeping the greatest commandment, which is in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Again, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, we're going to get to Deuteronomy 6 soon. We'll be coming back to this to go in more depth what about this saying. The Jews refer to it as the Shema. Um, but we're not focusing today on Deuteronomy 6. We're in chapter 5, so let's stay focused on the Ten Commandments. But let us remember that as well as the Ten Commandments is by no means the, the limit of the requirements that God places on his people in Israel. It's not all there is. But the Ten Commandments are also commandments for all people. Everyone is expected by God to adhere to these commands, so they are by no means limited to Israelites or even just to us Christians here and now. These are a moral code for all people. And the moral code begins with a recognition of who God is and a reverence for Him. And so we'll look at this morning the first three commandments which speak to us of the idea that God is to be completely and utterly without competition in our lives. Let's read them together. Starting with verse 7, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make for yourself you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the fourth, third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. 
For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I think it is important for us to group these three commands together. Many of us at some point had to memorize the Ten Commandments so that they're in our heads one through ten, right? And you maybe were so good at Bible quizzing when you were a kid that you could even say on the spot, what's commandment two, what's commandment six? Some of you are, I have to do them in order, but some of you could do them randomly like that. But really, these first three are tied together so that even though it is okay to list the Ten Commandments, we really need to understand something about these three that says something about the very character of God. God is holy. Of all the attributes of God, which there are many of, and they are a worthwhile study, many people have benefited from studying the attributes of God omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, gracious, merciful, glorious, loving, just, righteous, and many more. But there's one attribute of God that is held in Scripture above all the others, and that is holy. In fact, he's thrice holy. In Jewish vocabulary, if something is repeated, it holds a much higher precedence. So when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, The repetition of the word truly meant we are to take notice that this is a statement that's strongly claiming truth. But is repeating something once, if repeating something once is enough to grab your attention as to the importance of the writing or saying, how much higher importance is placed on something that is repeated three times? Isaiah recorded his encounter with the Lord and the seraphim which were a type of angel, stood around the Lord, and there is a word that's repeated three times. Isaiah 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in the revelation, around the throne of God are four living creatures. Revelation 4.8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What does the word holy mean? Well, it, it can have a number of connotations to it. It can mean pure. It can mean divine, sacred, perfect, set apart, dedicated, morally pure, upright, most sacred, commanding respect, And a word that's way overused in our culture today, awesome. God is holy. In respect to these first three commands, it is God's holiness that commands our attention and obedience to them. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, are there other gods to begin with? Well, not really, but certainly in the world, there are many people who worship false gods or gods that are idols. 
the command is not implying that there are other gods. It's simply saying you're not to worship any other god. The people of Israel had come from Egypt where other gods were worshipped. Small g. They were entering a land where there were pagans that worshipped various satanic beings. God is saying to them clearly that because he was holy, his people needed to be holy as well. And it's not just once in Scripture that God tells his people to be holy. It's a number of times. I'll show you some of them. Leviticus eleven forty four and 45, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Do you see that again? He's reminding them one more time. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall, therefore, be holy. For I am holy. Leviticus 19.2 Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 27 Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 20.26 You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. 1 Peter 1.15 and 16 But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is holy, and his people are to be holy. And this means they cannot, must not, are forbidden to have any gods before him. He does not allow it. He's a jealous God, it says. Not jealous like we sometimes think of, but jealous like a good husband who sees anything coming at his wife that may harm her reputation or come between his relationship with her, he will rise up and defend his relationship with her. He loves her so much that he's not willing to have anything come out about that would endanger or damage the relationship. And so it is that God defends his relationship with his people, calling himself a jealous God. He wants the relationship to be pure, holy, one commentator wrote, saying that the Lord is a jealous God, makes a covenantal claim about God, and expresses a positive word about the proper and inherent, inherent exclusiveness that belongs to the nature of the relationship between God and God's people, or the nature of covenant. As a covenantal claim, the jealousy of God has a double force. Jealousy for Israel's full and exclusive worship of the Lord and jealousy or zeal for God's powerful commitment to and love for his people. As one sees, for example, in such contexts as Isaiah 9, 7, let them see thy zeal for the people in other places. The jealousy of God, therefore, is that dimension within the divine encounter with the Lord's people that brooks no other final loyalty and ensures no other recipient of such unbounding love and grace. It is God's way of saying, I will have nothing less than your full devotion, and you will have nothing less than all my love. It is the kind of attribute that belongs to a marriage relationship where there's pro proper covenantal jealousy. So getting back to that Westminster Shorter Catechism, there's a number of questions about the first commandment, and I'll read them for you. Question 45 says, what is the first commandment? 
Answer, the first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Question 46, what is required by, in the first commandment? The first commandment requireth to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly. Question 47, what is forbidden in the first commandment? The first commandment forbids denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due to him alone. And question 48, what are we specially taught by these words before me in the first commandment? These words before me in the first commandment teach us that God, who seeth all things, take notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God. Backing up the first command comes the second command. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or anything or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or what is that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing my steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, we covered this topic pretty well in Deuteronomy 4 with regards to idolatry, so I'm not going to spend as much time on this one because I think we covered it pretty well already. If, if you missed that, you can go to the church website, and all the sermons are on there, so if you want to go hear what that sermon was about, uh, you can go, or if you just want to have your memory refreshed. Now remember, context is king. Now some people have taken this passage very literally, uh, saying it means we can't have art, or any likeness of anything in heaven that's birds or clouds or stars or whatever. Uh, on the earth beneath, that would be mountains, animals, whatever, or in the water, fish, and those kind of things. But that is a hyper-literal and incorrect view. In fact, according to Scripture, Solomon built the temple in accordance with God's commands, and included in that, in 1 Kings 6, we see he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the carved work. So clearly God is not prohibiting art here. The context that we need to look at is right in front of us. This is why I said these three commandments have to be looked at together. The context is you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them. And the addendum to this is interesting. He's a jealous God. He considers idol worship to be hatred towards him. And some have taken that statement about visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And some people have taken that to mean that if one person defies God in this way, he's cursed his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And so some have felt that they've been kept back from getting God's blessing because of something their parent did or their grandparent did. But I want you to know what is actually said here. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So what if you came from a family that hated God? Are you cursed because of them? No, the curse is on those who hate God. There's not a generational curse that cannot be broken if any descendant of that line should learn to love God. The curse is on those who hate God. 
and he will show his steadfast love to thousands of those who, keep, who love me and keep my commandments. And remember this, that the evidence of loving God is shown by the keeping of his commandments. How do we show our love for God? By keeping his commandments. How do we show our love for our neighbor? By keeping the commandments. Who will God show steadfast love to? Thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. So if you have ever been told by somehow you're missing part of God's blessing because of your ancestors, whether it's your parents or grandparents or whatever, know this. The curse only continues insofar as the hatred of God continues. When anyone in that family line leaves off the hatred of God and follows his commands in a love an act of loving obedience, that curse is not there. In fact, it was clear in God's way of doing things that the penalties or the guilt of a sin is, of the parent is not to be carried on by their children. If we get to Deuteronomy 24 someday, we'll see this. Verse 16, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So we are not to receive the guilt of another person's sin. However, it is clear that we can be affected by the consequences of their sin. Isn't that true? We don't send a child to prison for the crime of their parent. However, the child still suffers consequences. For example, they could be put into an abusive foster home because their parent is in the, in the prison, right? Or even just having to grow up with not having both parents there. The consequences of sin are felt by others, but the guilt of the sin falls on the sinner. So the Reformation uh, Study Bible gives you this, the Westminster Shorter Catechism on the Second Commandment, questions 49 through 52. Question 49, what is the second commandment? And I won't read that because we just went through that. Question 50, what is required in the second commandment? The second commandment requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. Question 51, what is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. Isn't that interesting? A little bit more of an expansion there. And again, if you look at the three commandments together, you can see that certainly fits in. Really, God wants his word to guide our worship, not our feelings. And that's a dangerous thing, by the way. I want to just, I didn't plan to say this, but as you see online videos and different worship services it's a sad and probably a little bit frightening thing that much of worship going on in churches today is not really worship it's not according to god's word and we have to be careful about that and then question 52 what are the reasons annexed to the second commandment the reasons annexed to the second commandment are god's sovereignty over us his propriety in us and the zeal he hath of his own worship. So we are to have no other gods before, God, before our God. We're to have no images to bow down to. And 
the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, the most popular take of this in the church, at least in my experience, in my growing up and living in the church, is that this has to do with curse words. And certainly there's an element of that, yet this may be taking us off the point a little bit. What it means to take his name in vain is to take his name too lightly or to use it in an appropriate way. Patrick Miller says, Misuse of God's name is not confined to profanity or cursing. Any situation wherein the divine name is used without seriousness violates the command. As several biblical passages indicate, swearing by God's name is not wrong. Indeed, it's specifically commanded in some passages. Misuse of the name happens if one swears by God's name and then lies. The commandment, therefore, has to do with telling the truth. To invoke the name of the Lord is a commitment to tell the truth. And Robert Bratcher says, take the name in vain. That is, to use a name in a manner not befitting God's holiness. The phrase in vain means essentially for a worthless purpose. And this could involve the use of magic, incantation, or curses. Some translations say for evil purposes, misuse the name, make wrongful use of, make wrong use of, um, swear falsely. And Craig defines it as an attempt to manipulate God for personal ends. So it can also be using God's name in a way that is unfortunately all too common in churches today. You see, I have known people who would never dream of using God's word name as a curse word, but they would readily give you instructions to follow because that's what God would want you to do. In fact, it can be, in many cases, blatant spiritual manipulation. I've had someone, not at this church, say to me, Pastor, the Lord's been telling me that we, and of course this is the royal we, right? That we, which by the they mean you, Pastor, um, need to do such and such. The Lord's been telling me that we should do this. Fill in the blank. And it's amazing to me that when that has happened to me more than once, it's always been the exact same thing that that person had been advocating for for a long time. Isn't it interesting how God's will finally aligned with theirs? So they would tell me as pastor, you need to do this because God's telling me that. And sometimes pastors do it to their congregations too, so beware of that. Beware of people who claim that God is speaking through them to you directly. This is a very powerful way to manipulate someone who's trying their best to live for Jesus. You tell them, Jesus says you ought to do such and such. And if you are someone who tends to say to people, the Lord's telling me that, dot, 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 beware. If you're the type of person who says that, you may be blatantly violating the third commandment. You may be using the Lord's name in vain. If anyone claims they are speaking the words of God to another person, they are claiming the authority they do not have. If you want to encourage another believer, don't tell them something and claim God said it to you that you're just the middleman. Instead, if you want to comfort someone or bring peace into their situation, then give them the true words of God that are found in Scripture. And if you want to be an encourager, and you ought to be, then you could make a list of encouraging passages of Scripture. 
and write them down somewhere and share them with others or take time to pray with someone. But be very careful not to speak with authority you don't have. Why? Because the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Taking his name could be swearing by his name and then lying, using his name in a flippant manner or curse, telling someone you are speaking in that name but speaking words that are your own and not God's. From the shorter catechism, then we have these questions and answers about the third commandment. Question 53, what is the third commandment? The third commandment is thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Question 54. What is required in the third commandment? Answer. The third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's name. Names, titles, attributes, ordinances, words, and works. Question 55. What is forbidden in the third commandment? The third commandment forbiddeth all profaning or abusing of anything whereby God maketh himself known. And 56, what is the reason annexed to the third commandment? The reason annexed to the third commandment is that however the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from men, yet the Lord our God will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment. So in summary, the first three commandments are related in that they reveal our need for reverence to our thrice holy God. Next week, we're going to take a look at commandment four, and that'll be challenging to us as well. During the coming week, though, I encourage us all to reflect on these first three commandments. And dare I say, ask ourselves how we may be violating them. Ask God to reveal us to us where we might be guilty. And when we know our guilt, then what can we do? We can turn from it, and we can confess it before him, and we can readily repent of it because we know what it is. It's a scary prayer to pray, God, reveal to me my faults. But if we want to do well before him, he's pleased when we pray that. And he'll show us our faults. He, is, he loves us that way. He continues to sanctify us. That's the work we, we talk about, sanctification, the work of God and making us more like Christ. It's a, it's a thing that continues to happen through the believer's life. And if you're married, by the way, I, and if you have a family that lives with you, that's part of your sanctification as well. Perhaps they may point out to you when you're failing in these commands. If they love you, they will. And I've often said that my, uh, part of my sanctification has been my spouse who loves me enough to give me the elbow sometimes or the stomp on the foot when I need it. So, should we do that this week? Examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith? Examine ourselves according to these commands. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and your commands. 
Lord, let us not ever look at your commands as some burden, but Lord, let us delight in keeping them because we love you. And those of us, Lord, who love you but sometimes forget we love you, would you refill us with the love we need for you? Would you continue to draw us toward yourself, Lord? Would you continue, Lord, to convict us of our sin as it comes up so that we don't leave anything on the table, but we continually come to you seeking your mercy and your grace because you promise that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness because, Lord, we want to keep these commandments. We want to be holy because you are holy. Lord, help us to do it. May your Holy Spirit be working in our lives, not just this week, but ongoing. May you continue to convict us of sin. And may we continue to repent of it and confess it, Lord. You are a good, good God. We thank you, Lord, that you have shown us how to best worship you. And I pray, Lord, that we'd be willing to follow it and do it your way. In Jesus' name, amen.